You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to another episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I am your host, Tony Lopes. Today's guest was once Banana Republic's creative director for Global Windows, who believed that you shouldn't design into windows, you should just design cool ideas and figure out how to put a window around them. He focused on dynamic presentations that would make someone turn their head. Once they turn their head, he let the product tell the stories. He also believes that creativity is created equal. When working on a team, he found that collaboration led to improved creativity, and often they would just head down to the waterfront wherever they were working around the globe to come up with better ideas, and then they would take those raw ideas, go back, use their left brain, and help whittle them down into what later became their window presentations. But he also believed that creativity came from anywhere. So whether it was store employees at the retail locations that he was working at, or other members of his team, every idea was created equal. Now, he's providing the community with tools and programs for well-being, including mindfulness-based stress reduction, cultivating emotional balance, and also breathing classes to help with a relaxed nervous system and overall well-being. He also creates walking mondolinth installations where you can actually walk through a mindfulness process often at the Jersey Shore, but also around the world. Here for your listening pleasure are the self-made strategies of Teague O'Malley. Hey, Teague, how are you? I'm great, Tony. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. This is awesome. I've been dying to get a guest on to talk about mindfulness. We met because uh, I serve on the board of Today is a Good Day. You're very good friends with, with Martha and Paul Sharkey, who run Today is a Good Day and founded the organization so that's how we bumped into each other. And we'll get into what you're doing for today is a good day as well. But it was super exciting to meet with you. And as soon as we had our discussion on the phone, I just knew I couldn't wait to have you on the show because we need somebody to kind of bring some awareness and some transparency to, you know, the community with everything that's going on around us with COVID-19, with the recent protests. Uh, I think it's really important to talk about mindfulness. It's been a game changer in my life, in my wife's life. And every time we talk to someone who's found some form of meditation practice, you always see that even as they're talking about it, it's very mystical, for lack of a better term, sometimes very abstract. Obviously, it's hard to talk about those things, and, and it's such a personal experience. But to have someone like you who's come, first of all, from an entrepreneurial, very capitalistic background, and we'll talk about how that has changed in your life as well. But now you're you you found your own mindfulness. And by the way, a lot of the information that I dug up for your bio was from a craft hero video, which if you search for Tigo Mali on Google, you'll find it pops up on that first search engine results page. Great two minute video that they did about you way back when you were at Banana Republic. But really cool. I thought I thought there was an interesting sort of evolution. You could already see you you in your eyes talking about this mindfulness process, which obviously was a huge part of your life. Um, so we'll talk about that as well. But let's get into it. Let's talk about how you were at Banana Republic. You started when you were in high school. We talked about that before we jumped on. And you worked your way up throughout the company to a very high-level global position. Um, and you were already doing your own meditation practice. Let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about your career, how it evolved, uh, your background, and then what happened with all of that. Yeah, sounds great. 
I'd like to start actually with the meditation part. I, I started meditating as a child. Uh, I was, you know, I was raised in a Catholic family, went to a Catholic school, and part of our religion class was 15 minutes of mindful awareness of our breath. So the seeds had been there since I was a child and got to experience some of my first uh, meditation retreats as a teenager. And so these um, experiences really set me up for entering the workforce, a very stressful work environment. Uh, so yes, I started working at Banana Republic as my part-time job in high school. I went to design school and continued working, uh, became the visual manager of the store. And then through my career, started, you know, more stores started getting added. And then I had, you know, regions and, uh, and just when I graduated from design school, the company was expanding overseas and they needed someone young and single and available uh, to fly around the world, but also that knows the brand. Uh, so uh, when I was 23, I wow. took off uh, and spent about 12 years on the road traveling, uh, helped launch a brand in, at the time, like 40 countries. Wow. Uh, and... Uh, moved to London and oversaw the expansion in Europe, oversaw all the creative teams that were developing the localized marketing strategies and store experience uh, <clears throat> presentations. And then uh, I took on a global role. So all territories, including North America, uh, returned back to San Francisco, which also was a big part of my kind of spiritual awakening uh, while I was still at the company. Uh, and then the last role that I had was more uh, strictly creative, uh, where I was overseeing the windows, as you were mentioning. Um, and it is the stress of that corporate job and flying around the world. You know, every time the plane took off, I was practicing mindfulness. Uh, every time that I was feeling, you know, I, I often got these waves of, they weren't really panic attacks, but just anxiety of, I, you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night in South Korea and just be missing you know, home and not really wanting to be there. And the meditation practice was there for me. It was kind of like the, the life jacket. Uh, and so the more stressful that my career became, the deeper my meditation practice uh, grew. And living in California, there's much more exposure to all these different types of modalities from, you know, all the way on the spiritual spectrum, but also uh, on the other side of things, the more secular evidence-based uh, programs I had exposure to. So it was this kind of intermingling um, of my kind of career life with this support that I was feeling from meditation. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting that you mentioned it as sort of your life jacket, maybe your constant uh, when you're experiencing those waves of anxiety. So just very quickly, right at the beginning of the episode, let's just talk about a little bit of demystification of this whole thing, right? Because I think sometimes people, um, and it's changing as Westerners are starting to uh, do more scientific studies and all of this crazy stuff. Uh, I think we get so wrapped up in in results and needing a very specific um, because we live in a, in a very uh, uh, rational science based culture, right? That we need these 
studies and whatever, rather than if it works for you, just keep doing it. Who cares if it's working for everybody else or not? Right. But anyways, that aside, that's that's for another another podcast, another day. But let's demystify it a little bit. It's not necessarily a, a, a spiritual thing, although it can be certainly um, it's it's agnostic, certainly. There's no real uh, uh, religious implications. You can you can anyone can meditate. Right. It has nothing to do. You're not uh, in any way going against your religion or anything like that. It's really just a process for centering yourself. So let's talk about some of the things that that you do. Um, MBSR, which is mindfulness based stress reduction. Uh, You do the cultivating emotional balance. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then your breathing class. Um, let, let's first and foremost, let's just start with the demystification. What it, for somebody who who's concerned about some of these issues, what's your advice to them in a practical way just to get into it and get past the initial hurdles? Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. And it is we are facing an uphill battle in the West of, you know, making this accessible. Uh, there is a perception that meditation is linked with religion. Uh, and so science is really helping push that, push through that perception. Uh, we live in a goal-oriented society. And so asking someone to let go of that and just be there, you know, with an intention uh, is difficult. It's new for a lot of people. And also there's a perception that meditation is blissful. And, you know, when I teach, I always say, this is not rainbows and unicorns. You know, this is turning and facing what doesn't feel good. Or maybe I should say, turning and facing whatever is there. Sometimes it may feel good. Sometimes there may be like really strong moments of gratitude and love and, you know, compassion. Sometimes things come up, you know, and, and the teachings, all the teachings, no matter where they came from, say having the ability to just be with what's happening is the pathway through it. In our culture, we push everything down that doesn't feel good. Uh, people certainly not pay money to feel bad. Uh, there's, there's an entire wellness industry that has now, you know, developed on feeling good people paying money to feel good. So when you come to meditation and you're asked to just feel what you're feeling, there's a little bit of a disconnect there. So I think pulling away, demystifying that, you know, and saying that like the only way through difficulty, uh, is, to actually confront it head on. Uh, yeah, and I think that, you know, like we said, the more that science is showing us what's actually happening in the brain, in specific areas of the brain, and what they correlate to the sense of well-being in the light, in your life perspective, and also, you know, these things about the practices that are more 911, I need to calm down right now, you know. I, I encounter people that are in very high levels of suffering. I teach um, a lot of healthcare providers that work in emergency rooms and the NICU, uh, parents that have premature babies. And to ask them to turn and look at their suffering in that moment is not always the best. So there's a whole other set of practices of calming the nervous system, reflecting on what is here that's enough, that does feel good, not to bypass but to um, help strengthen the ability to perspective take uh, more balance rather than getting completely swallowed up. Right, right, exactly. <clears throat> and so I think that's really interesting. I also have found some 
really interesting resources on my own, just apps and stuff like that. And by the way, they're just, you know, obviously if you're paying for a live program with a live instructor, I think there's a ton of value in that. This is just my personal opinion. But um, a lot of times when people pay for apps, look, there are a ton of free resources online, uh, whether it's Insight Timer as an app, you can find a lot of user guided stuff um, online, Stanford University, a lot of the universities on the West Coast, to your point, have had really uh, um, uh, industry leading, for lack of a better term, using a, a very Western capitalistic term, um, industry leading programs for free, again, that you can find online. Uh, uh, lots of really good stuff. Stop, Breathe, and Think is another good uh, app that I've used that has a lot of free resources. But one of the things that I've found is you can actually find different forms of meditation, not just sitting down in that traditional lotus position or legs crossed or whatever. Um, you can find different forms of meditation. You can find it by doing martial arts or exercising can be a form of meditation. Uh, there are meditations called sound baths. Check those out. Those are, are uh, interesting forms of meditation as well. You can literally watch a flame. Buddhists do it all the time, right? Um, so let's talk about that. Some of the, uh, when you have someone who can just not sit still uh, by themselves with their thoughts quietly, air quotes, um, trying to, and I think also just very briefly, if you could, if you could give your opinion and expertise on the whole concept of quieting the mind, which was probably yeah. the worst marketing right. idea for meditation totally. of all time, right? Totally. <laughs> uh, Cause it's, it's impossible, right? Um, uh, and I think actually Headspace, just sidebar, does a really good job in their free 10 day program of demystifying it with some of the videos that they have, right? Talking about just watching traffic or watching waves is another reference that people use a lot. So let's talk a little bit about that part of the demystification. Um, you're yeah. not trying to quiet your mind, right? How how do you describe it to someone coming into it for the first time that's having difficulty just sitting still? And then also what uh, forms of meditation or what tips do you offer to somebody like that to get them past those barriers? Yeah, great question. You know, I think when, when we look at mindfulness as a tool, so there's mindfulness as a meditation to help you cultivate the practice. And then once you have that, it becomes a tool that you can apply and integrate into your life, as we say, off the cushion. So yeah, you know, uh, art, creating art, singing, even playing with your child or a pet, those can be forms of meditation. Once you learn the basics, once you create some of those pathways in the brain of being able to be present, using our senses to anchor into the present moment. If you're, if you're aware of a sense you're in the present. You can't feel uh, one of the senses in the past or in the future. If, if you can, that's a memory and that's a thought. Right. So uh, really anchoring into that idea then allows mindfulness to expand beyond just what we think of, you know, the like sitting quietly. And, and as I say, sometimes like, you know, it's not meditation boot camp. <laughs> there is a time and a place for that. And there is a lot of science that shows how effective the formal practice is. Um, but the whole point of meditation is not to de-stress and find this bliss and put a band-aid on your suffering or pain or what's not feeling good and then go back out into the world and get stressed again. Right. The whole idea is to build resilience so that when, you know, you're having an argument with a partner or your boss is giving you a hard time in the office, that you have an awareness of, oh, my heart's starting to beat really fastly. Oh, my, you know, you're starting to feel the effect of whatever the emotion that's arising in the body 
And the idea is that we can open up the space. We can open up spaciousness, a room for choice. Instead of reacting out of automatic conditioning, we can see a little, you know, it, it, uh, it fluctuates sometimes. It, it just happens and you can't control it and you're there. And other times there's a big a sense of spaciousness that opens up that you can choose what we would call a skillful response. So in terms of people that, you know, d- different meditations work for different people. Mm-hmm. And also I say all the time, different meditations work at different times. You know, it's hard for me to practice mindfulness at night when I'm tired. Single point of concentration of focusing on one thing and the mind wanders and then come back. That's hard for me at night. So I usually will do my mindfulness training in the morning um, and then things in the evening, more like loving kindness, gratitude that, uh, that work at that time of day. So in the, in MBSR and CEB, I mean, between the two, I think there's probably a total 30 different meditations. Wow. So if breath work doesn't work for you, you can move to sensations in the body. If, if that doesn't feel good. You can move to sound, listening, you know, sound meditation, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. just whatever it is, bird singing, water flowing, choosing that as your anchor, mind wanders away and you come back. No problem. The mind's supposed to wander. That's its job. Right. And, and in fact, we need it to wander so we can practice bringing it back. That's kind of the muscle that builds the prefrontal cortex. Um, so when people are having a hard time sitting still, they can try you know, there's, there's two ways. One is notice that, be with it. I'm really antsy. That's okay. Everything here is welcome, you know, uh, and knowing when to say this, this is not working for me right now and that's okay. And I'm going to move on to something else or I'll come back to this later. No problem. So you can even move into walking meditation, um, yoga, the yoga practices, uh, gentle stretching and, uh, moving the body are also included in MBSR, the same thing. You're just using the movement of the body as the anchor for you to pay attention to. Walking meditations, uh, you know, which is what the mandala uh, labyrinths are all about. Um, and the beautiful thing about this is that once you're practiced enough, you can go out into the world and be, life is meditation. It's not something... Separate again, going back to our goal-oriented, goal-oriented culture of doers. We're all doers. We're doing, 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 doing. And in our culture, meditation has become another thing that you have to do. And so, the people that need it most, that are stressed and busy, <laughs> I don't have time for that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of counterintuitive because taking however long you have, 10, 20, 30 minutes, actually makes you more productive in the long run. So then you you can pick up time somewhere else. So yeah, there, there's a really beautiful unfolding of how these practices show up in life. And it becomes more, less about doing and more about being. Right. Exactly. And I I think there were some really interesting things that you pointed out there that stood out to me that I'll unpack a little bit, just to recap for those that are listening or watching, we are recording this on video as well. And I'll post this to our YouTube channel for those who want to see Teague and experience and be mindful with us while while they watch. Um, but a, a few of the things that you touched on are, um, and one one of the things that really jumped out to me that kind of changed the game, so to speak, uh, was the no judgment, right? You're experiencing whatever. We're, we, we come from a very judgy culture, 
uh, to begin with, just on a constant basis. That's what you know. Uh, marketing to to some degree is is maybe causing that, especially with the evolution of online, and you're just being constantly bombarded with judgment after judgment after judgment. So it's really being part of a being aware of what's going on. You pointed that out as well, um, but then just not judging it and um, letting it come and go as it may, right? And then just focusing on the present moment. And that's where it starts to evolve into what ends up becoming a really interesting and wonderful discovery, I think, for most people is when they get to that point and and you start to realize you can be mindful when you're brushing your teeth, when you're doing the dishes, when you're uh, you know doing some exercise. And you also touched on that, that this is really like um, going to the gym kind of to a degree, right? You're, you're just exercising a different muscle and a, a different set of skills, but you wouldn't expect that you would go to the gym and all of a sudden bench press a thousand pounds, right? right. And, or that it would feel good. Right, right. And there's that <laughs> expectation. There's that weird expectation, but it's exactly like that. You need to go and your first few sessions are going to be, you know, you're not going to rack up that many weights on the mental bar. It's just going to be let me just sit here and try to get used to the motions and the the feeling of being here. One of the things again that changed for me was one you can you can YouTube um, the videos which I think are fantastic from Headspace. There are these little animated videos that do a great job of explaining a lot of this stuff. And one of them talks about how the mind racing is often like watching a highway full of cars, and frequently you you want to go out and chase a car. And what ends up happening is you just cause a, a, a 50 car pileup, a 50 thoughts pileup, right? It's just just becomes that way. For me, my my personal teacher um, helped me to focus on this concept of either watching clouds pass or watching waves come in and out. And it's very much like that. Like the depth of the ocean is the subconscious or, or the entirety of all of your billions and billions of thoughts, right? And then they just come in and out as waves. And if rather than chasing them, you just accept that they come in, you think whatever you think, and you just, okay, without any judgment, that's really the hardest part, but the key to it all, right? And you just let it pass, go back out, and you're good. You just kind of sit there and watch them in and out. And I I think that's really interesting. But one of the things that you touched on was also when to know that this is maybe not working for you or that it's not in particular, your flavor, right? Your Baskin Robbins of meditation, if you will. Um, and for me, that's been a huge part of it. I mean, I, I uh, undiagnosed, but I know obviously, cause I live in my own brain. Uh, I know that I, I suffer from some form of ADHD or whatever you want to label it, some form of dis- overly distractive uh, uh, thought process. And a lot of times it can be a struggle to just sit still for someone like that. And I'm sure for individuals with PTSD, it's probably a similar form of that. Actually, there have been plenty of studies that have shown that ADHD uh, is actually a form of depression to a degree um, and anxiety. They all kind of come from similar, quote unquote, places. Right. Um, so for someone like me, it's like 30 seconds might be this isn't working. I got to get the hell out of here. Right. So how do you work with someone on that when when to say, OK, you know, maybe the 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 bench rack or whatever is not the the appropriate mindfulness thing for me? Maybe I'll go try the the mental elliptical instead, a different form yeah. of meditation. Yeah, I think my first question would be to explore what the idea of it working means. Like this is not working. What does that really mean? 
Okay. What is your expectation? Are you expecting to sit and be calm and peaceful and everything in the world is, you know, <laughs> perfect? <laughs> if that's what we're benchmarking meditation working at, it's, it's going to be tough. It's right. going to be really tough. You right. know, the, the working, the evaluation of whether something is working comes in noticing the effect in your life. Like, wow, that person just blew up on me and I was, and I stayed really calm. You know, that's when you know it's working. But your, your actual formal practice of sitting or walking or whatever it may be, may be really difficult. You know, it might not feel good and things like that. I think the other thing, and you mentioned it, your teacher, having a teacher is so important. And I say this all the time. I don't want to demonize the apps because they're so helpful to learn. Uh, but you, in MBSR and CEB, one of the, the biggest methods that we teach through is inquiry and hearing people share their experiences and then and how the teacher responds to that and holds space for them. So I think that having the ability to even say, I don't think this is working, and then have the teacher say, what's your expectation of working in a conversation, and then you can talk about it, is so important. Right. And if if you, you know, are a big part of the reason why the teacher is so important is because you can get stuck. You can, you know, you can get stuck in a practice that might not be supportive for you. It might actually be doing, you know, something different in the brain than what you intended to. And having a teacher that you can check in and this is what I'm noticing is really important. And so I use the apps, you know, like if I, if I feel like I need to be guided that day, I'll use Insight Timer. Um, but like you, I have teachers, you know, that I can check in with. So, um, I also wanted to mention, you know, you, you were talking a lot about the not non-judgment and that is a key pillar of, you know, the foundations of mindfulness and it has been for thousands of years. It's really hard to not judge. And in fact, judgment keeps us alive, right? right? right. We're programmed <laughs> to judge. Yeah. Well, we're programmed, but we need it. Yeah, someone said to me one time, like, you need judgment in order to cross the street safely. Right, exactly. And th this is where it comes up, the difference between judgment and discernment. You know, and, and you hear in a lot of these meditation classes, it's not really using words like good or bad. It's more about supportive or not supportive, pleasant, unpleasant. So a lot of times noticing the judgment is the practice. Let's take a let's take a breather here. Let's like relax a little bit on this trying to not judge thing and just notice that I am judging. Don't judge the judging. <laughs> <laughs> it becomes right. just like you can focus your awareness on the breath. You can focus your awareness on your reactivity and your judgment. Great point. Um, and that becomes its own practice. So just to say that, you know, I also love this idea of uh, saying lack of measurement, you know, in Sanskrit, the, the, the definition of mindfulness is a lack of measurement. So you're just being with what is. And when that judgment pops up, something's not feeling good, it's really the chance to re to create a new pathway in the brain. The In the ancient traditions, this is called Vipassana. You're sitting, you're feeling pain in the body, you know, your back is tired, you didn't sleep well last night, you know, your meditation is not going well. <laughs> For those that are listening, I'm doing air quotes when yeah. I say, well, and the idea is that the mind will then wander to a very unpleasant feeling because you're feeling pain in the body. It reminds you of something that doesn't feel well. 
the opportunity in that moment is to allow that to arise without reacting to it. And it creates a new pathway of just allowing the moment to be there. It's the same thing with pleasant feelings. You're having a pleasant meditation and then the mind wanders to things that feel good. And we start following that. We run out into traffic and follow that car. <laughs> and now here we are caught up in our, attach- or our, yeah, our attachments. Things that feel good, we cling on to them. Instead of letting life just move through us, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, we're constantly in this like we're in this loop of pushing away what doesn't feel good and grabbing on to what does feel good. And we're missing all of life, the other 99% of life that's happening around us. So yeah, I just want to touch on the non-judgment thing because it's it is, I think, you know, going back to where we started as well, a big part of demystifying it is catching some of these cliches. Right. You know, like be here now and, you know, let it go and all these things. I, Quieting I, the mind. I often exactly quiet the mind. Yeah, yeah. quiet the mind That's by the noticing one, yeah. that it's not quiet. It's a paradox. And I joke a lot of times with my friends, I want to create a magic wand as a joke to be, you know, like when I'm teaching and people, oh, here's the magic wand. Oof. You're, you know, your problems are gone. You're not judging. It just doesn't work like that. Exactly. That's, Actually, that's a, that's a great analogy. Sorry to interrupt that. You yeah. know, it, it's not it, it, if you did that right in class as an illustration, magic wand, boom, all your problems are gone. They'd look at you like you were crazy. And that's where you say, yeah, exactly. That's the point, right? Is being aware yeah. of this fact that it's not it, it is to a degree. It, it sucks to put a label of hard work on it. Right. But there's no get rich quick pill when it comes to mindfulness or meditation or any of this. It's you have to put in the time day after day and just kind of sit there. And one of the things that that worked for me was the awareness of when I go to the gym, when I work out, whatever my my exercise, my physical body, my uh, 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 um, Mm -hmm. that part of it, uh, it. There are days where it's you're in the flow everything feels fantastic. You're euphoric as a part of the workout. And it's like, man, why couldn't it be like this every single day? Because I would work out every single day, no problem. But then there are those days, you know, 70%, 60% of the time, whatever, 50% of the time where it's you're trudging through the mud of just getting through the workout and it doesn't feel great. And you're like, what's going on? And who knows what, what causes that really to a degree. But it's the same thing, right? There are days where you meditate and it's the most magical, wonderful, mystical. You, you just, it's almost like you got, you know, an hour's night's worth of rest, a a full night's worth of rest in your short meditation practice. And there are other days where it just, you can't focus. There's nothing that you can do to get it, to get it right. But, um, but yeah, I I think that's, that's an important thing and, and a brilliant point that you bring up. One of the other things that you talked about that I thought was interesting was that concept of awareness, which we touched on, right? And that's actually what ends up happening is, especially if you're someone who uh, gets stressed out very easily, or maybe somebody cuts you off and you just, you know, you lose your cool. Um, what ends up happening through any, I, I think any form of mindfulness practice or any form of meditative practice is that little moment between your reaction, you know, between the the trigger or the cause which is somebody cutting you off, which by the way, it, the more you study this, the more you realize it's not them. It's all inside of you. Oh, totally. It's all happening totally. inside of you. But anyways, so 
whatever happens that ticks you off. And then there's that tiny momentary space. And that space, the more you practice meditation and mindfulness, starts to expand. And there's just, there is no immediate reaction. There's no emotional reaction. There's that mm-hmm. calmness. Can you mm-hmm. talk, talk about that and what you've seen yeah. in some of your students? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or even, you know, you're saying that there's the space opens and there's calmness and, you know, it feels more like sometimes that space doesn't open, but you're still aware. Good you point. know, like the emotion will come on so quickly. You don't even have the chance right? to, you know, things are happening so quickly, but this is where resilience comes in because Great then point. you have the pathways in the brain to recover from that. Uh, yeah. You know, this is, this is the key to mindfulness of like the, the space in between the stimulus and the response and both uh, MBSR and CEB, the programs that I teach that this, this is one of the primary aspects of really um, looking at, you know, in MBSR, we say there's the event and then there's the response to it. And in the middle is where stress happens when they come together. Mindfulness starts creating a little bubble so that the events still happen. Stress is still going to happen. Stressful events are going to happen. You right, know, like right. meditation is not going to take, take that away. <laughs> right. But And we might even still have the reaction. We might still get triggered. But then there's that bubble so they can't get to each other. And that's the space that's opening. And then in that where the stress was, that mindfulness has now started to um, open up room is where then we have skillful response. So in MBSR, we talk a lot about mindful communication, we talk about heart opening the heart, compassionate response. So we move from this kind of stress reaction to spaciousness that allows a skillful response. CEB goes even deeper into it. And we really, it's it's really about the emotional, uh, managing the emotions. And so it's the same model, but we go deeper. So like, what are the, what's your personal history? So someone cuts you off on traffic. What's happened in the past that's causing this to be a problem for you? And sometimes applying mindfulness to that, you know, we call it cutting the cord it helps cut the cords to that database of, oh, I'm aware this is actually coming from a childhood wound or not being seen. But also it goes even further into how is this showing up in my body? What is the physiological response? What's, where's my mind going with this? Um, in a lot of the teachings and particularly in CB, we talk about this refractory period of emotional activation. We're not seeing clearly, you know, things, things, things that normally are like, the love for this person that we normally feel right. when we're in an emotion, heightened emotional state isn't always available. Right, right. And so the idea is, as we've been talking about, there's a whole toolkit of practices, not just singular, a single point of concentration, which is mindfulness, loving kindness. Uh, you know, if, if anger is coming up, uh, you know, may I, may I be at peace? May I be at ease? The person that's making me angry, may they be at peace? You know, may they be free from their suffering that's causing the anger. Uh, self-compassion, you know, may I have the courage to deal with what's happening right now. These are all of the things that you can apply on top of what we call the um, emotional episode timeline. Different different practices do different things in the moment and also in terms of building resiliency over the long term. So using mindfulness as an awareness practice can cut a cord to the database or to a physiological response the what we call the four measurables the the heart opening practices um 
I love, you know, one of the teachers, one of the lineage holders actually of Vipassana called that practice the ointment, you know, the like wrapping up our wounds in a loving, warm blanket. So, yeah, there's a lot of different ways to work with that stimulus and response and a lot of different practices. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and I, I think it's really interesting also because coming from this background of Buddhism, by the way, in, in a, a secular kind of way, right? Because, yeah, you know, there, there, is the, there are the religious aspects, but this really, as we mentioned in the beginning, has really nothing to do with religion. You can do this whether you're a Muslim, a Catholic, a Christian, whatever, whatever you identify yourself with, this is completely separate from that. But it comes from that concept of the dichotomy between pain and suffering, right? Pain is, is literally what you feel. For example, you know, you touch a stove, you burn your hand. That moment that you feel that pain from the burn is the pain. The suffering is what you think afterwards, right? That piece of effing you know, as stove and, and all of these things, I'm trying to be delicate because, you know, I, I want to keep this episode as open to as many people as possible, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, the things that you think about that you add to it, that, that mental head trash, quite frankly, that you bring to it sometimes are the things, and you're right, they can come from deep emotional wounds. They can come from things that happened in your childhood, in your past, in in different, um, interactions with the individuals that maybe you love most of the time, but you're not loving right now because they didn't get whatever right, right? Um, so th those things are all this this added stuff that you bring to the table. And once you start to A, become aware of it, but then B, remove the judgment from those moments. And, and I love that you pointed out, you just made me realize that um, it's not always about the space, like you said. Sometimes the emotion comes on so fast because it's so ingrained or what's called if you if you're a westerner listening to this an amygdala hijack right quite frankly where where your emotional uh, uh part of your triune brain takes over and you have this knee jerk emotional reaction but you just for a split second say why do i feel this way and that prevents you from just losing blowing your lid yeah. or at least stopping the the eruption before yeah yeah you're even saying it makes sense that i feel this way right that yeah. phrase alone is one of the most powerful moments of compassion that you can have for yourself it makes sense that i'm really angry right now right um and I think, you know, what you're saying about the pain and the suffering and the difference between the two, a lot of, you know, the foundation of mindfulness is not identifying as the experience we're having. You know, we don't think that we are the sound that we hear. We don't think that, you know, we are the food that we eat, the taste. We're not the taste. We're the experiencer of it. Right. And, you know, in the traditions that all of these practices were born out of, thinking, thoughts are the sixth sense. They're considered a sense. And so the more that we can see, you know, just as much as we don't identify with the sound over here, I don't have to identify it as the thought. We don't have to identify it with the pain. There's this beautiful sentiment of, um, you know, people in our language, in English language, we say, I am angry. Right. Uh, there, you know, one of the, this is a really nice story in the Celtic language and in, in Gaelic, there's no translation for identifying as an emotion. They, they don't have a translation that says, wow. I am angry. It's I am aware of a presence of anger. Wow. And there's a big shift there. You know, I am aware that there's pain here. I am not that pain. I am the, you know, observer of it. And I know that even for someone hearing this and, and that has, is new to the practice, that that can be, you know, lofty. 
And it comes, that's why we practice with little things like the breath. We, it's really hard, like I mentioned, it's really hard to practice mindfulness and, and these other meditations when, when things are really tough or on, a lot of times you'll hear meditation teachers say, call to mind a difficulty that you're experiencing in your life right now. Maybe not the hardest thing or the most triggering, but just something that's, that you can work with. And so we use things like the breath or sensations in the body, but really we're practicing for those really difficult times. Right. Uh, it, it makes it a little bit easier to chew, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, when, when you've been practicing, not identifying with the breath, with the body, so that then when that suffering comes, you're not identifying as it. You're just the aware, the observer of it. Great point. Great point. So now let's talk a little bit about each individual programming uh, program that you offer. So MBSR, again, is mindfulness-based stress reduction. So tell us just a little bit, you know, you don't have to give us all of the secret sauce, or if you want to give an example, that would be great that, that people mm -hmm. can sort of take with them from this episode. What, what yeah. does that entail and what do you usually do in that type of program? Sounds great. So MBSR is, uh, a program that was developed at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, medical school, uh, using traditional Buddhist meditation without any of the, you know, Dharma or teaching, which is more practices, um, to uh, work with patients that were uh, diagnosed with cancer. And so the pain, pain management, also emotions and things like that. So it's an eight-week course. Um, that has been developed and each week new practices are taught in a class and then every day uh, participants practice you know we ask 30 to 40 minutes a day but knowing that that's hard sometimes and it's cumulative so it can be 15 minutes in the morning 15 minutes at night uh, trying to kind of break down that barrier a little bit for people uh, and it progresses and, and like I said before it, it provides a toolkit you know this week we're working with the breath this week we're working with body sensations. This week we're working with walking. This week we're working with sound. So it really takes you through. Um, and and there's little things that are offered each week. Uh, you know, notice notice when you're feeling unpleasant things. How does it feel in the body? What comes up? And that um, you can share and talk about in class and how the practice may be supporting you. Um, there is uh, at week six of the program, there's an all day retreat where people, the participants really get at that point, they've been practicing, hopefully for, you know, a consistent amount of time every day or, you know, a couple of times a week. And then this retreat is really where things start getting solidified. It's a silent retreat, uh, which is very scary for a lot of people. Uh, but 9.9 .9 times out of 10, their response after the retreat is, wow, I need more silence in my life. <laughs> uh, and so it is really uh, a combination of this single pointed concentration. Really, we're, we're really activating the prefrontal cortex, which is where perspective taking, emotional regulation, um, the ability to be present, uh, and also simultaneously thinning the amygdala, which you mentioned is kind of more where fight or flight comes from. So that's the beautiful thing about neuroplasticity. When one is thickening, another one automatically is thinning. So, um, so yeah, that that would kind of be the the gist of an MBSR uh, course, and I, I guess I would also offer. It's pretty important to say that MBSR is not just mindfulness. You know, you, you hear there is a little bit of this mixed mindfulness corporations bringing teachers in to teach, and and there's nothing wrong with that. All paths, you know, are great, 
that that is mindfulness. This program it says mindfulness based. So mindfulness is a tool. It incorporates stress psychology around that response that we we're the the stress response that we were talking about. It also incorporates group dynamic and inquiry, which we talked about. So sharing experience and learning through hearing what others uh, are experiencing as well. So it's a lot of different traditions, uh, a lot of different both Eastern and Western viewpoints that are all kind of being merged together. Because it is primarily, you know, it was born out of healthcare. You know, the Center for Mindfulness at UMass Medical is the, for society and healthcare. Uh, so it is probably the more clinical uh, idea, but it's also beautiful because MBSR was born from highly intellectual, cognitive thinkers. You know, my some of my first teachers at Penn Medical are physicians, right? And they said, no curriculum, no reading, no script, no memorizing. When I teach, I don't read a meditation from a paper. They are teaching us to come into our heart, into our own practice, and guide from there. And so it's this really beautiful balance of this kind of more clinical, evidence-based um, presentation or package, but a really, you know, grounded and felt experience. No, I love that. And um, I, I think it's really interesting that you bring that up because it, it does help for you to form your own practice. And at the end of the day, this is really a very individual thing, right? It's internal. It's very abstract despite the the um, opportunity to share it with someone else in a group dynamic or one-on-one -on -one with a teacher, you, it will always still just have some nuance that is only true for you. you as an individual, you cannot, you know, there, there's only so much that we can express. It, um, and uh, I love the reference to mindfulness, by the way, that, that, was, <laughs> that was great. It's the first time I've heard that, but it makes a lot of sense. And that's actually my particular sort of um, warning that I give to people when I share this stuff with them, uh, whether it's students or friends or family or whoever it is, it's that caution to avoid um, getting stuck or handcuffed to a mindfulness app, for instance, and learning to just use your own breath uh, and sit, sit and kind of go through your own process is very helpful because of that, right? Because at the end of the day, you don't have access to your phone. <laughs> what are you going to do if you if you really like you said when you were in South Korea? I think you said right. You needed you needed that um, anchor for yourself when you were suffering from some significant anxiety, and that's a really important um, uh, skill to develop and tool. Um, yeah, and and practicing before that happens, right? Building the exactly. resiliency so when it does happen, because we all know it's going to, that you actually then have pathways to help you navigate it. Right. Sure. And, and that's an interesting point, actually, for us to discuss just really briefly. Uh, my teacher, for instance, uh, taught me long ago that a large part of the reason that he very infrequently gets sick, we'll say it most likely never, actually, quite frankly, but very infrequently. And the reason for that is through the many, many, many years of mindfulness practice and martial arts and all these other things that that he he has done and is sharing with me, um, you learn to become mindful of the triggers, right? So just taking the common cold as an example, right? People who get frequently sick. Now, first and foremost, we won't get into the rabbit hole of diet, lifestyle, stressors, 
uh, mental fog, all of those things contribute to your disease, right? It's your body is out of ease. It's no longer comfortable. It's dis-ease, right? So anyways, uh, that aside, but what you can do, and it's worked really well for, for my teacher and, and he's passed this on to me, is the next time you're about to get sick, try to ask yourself, what did I feel right before I got sick? And then the next time, what did I feel right before that? And before you know it, you've worked your way back to some trigger that happened two or three weeks before you started coughing and sniffling. And had you taken measures then, vitamin C, vitamin D, you know, increasing your immunity, astragalus, uh, uh, elderberry, whatever it is that you want to do to increase your immunity and protect yourself, had you taken those preventative measures, you may right. not have gotten sick to begin with. And often in mindfulness, I, I heard you mention this just now in passing, it's the same thing. It's those triggers, right, that lead up to that emotional eruption or to that uh, panic attack is where we see it most frequently. Um, I've known people, I'm not going to mention their names, obviously, but I've known people who suffer severely from, from panic and, and stress and anxiety, and often they don't know what causes it. They feel like it's just brought on out of nowhere. Um, and, and quick sidebar, I'm a little critical of the medical system because they are quick to push medications rather than sure. therapeutic remedies, right? And, and often it's something that could easily be corrected with some breath work, could easily be corrected with some mindfulness training. There are a lot of other things that you could do before you pop a pill that, quite frankly, then you're going to have to take for the rest of your life. Yeah. Well, this is where the capitalist conversation comes in. But <laughs> well, let, no, let's go. Let's talk and, about your your well, your lifestyle, how you've made the change. You worked at Banana, as we mentioned, and you climbed the corporate ladder, for lack of a better term, to this what what a lot of people envision as a great pinnacle, right? A great summit in your career. Um, but it also caused a lot of stress and anxiety and led to your lifestyle now. So let, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Yeah. How, how and I think changed. a really good segue, you know, here is the, in the traditions that this, this comes from, mindfulness is considered wisdom. It's the insight that arises from being with what is. Right. And that I think is, is really uh, what we're touching on here. Noticing, you know, right. the, the ability to actually see this clearly. Where was that point that I started getting? sick right uh, uh and i did want to also mention now you know we're recording this in the time of the pandemic and right. there's you know the fear this this is feeding the, the our sickness is being fed by the fear and the yep. anxiety that we're having definitely a correlation between those what, what i would say non-clinically speaking a lower vibration yeah i you agree know, with you 100 percent. i really do yeah uh so yeah, you know, spending 19 years in corporate retail, uh, I saw a lot of waste. Right. You know, the damage that mass market consumerism is creating on the planet. Um, I saw that firsthand. Uh, what marketing that you know, I heard this definition of marketing is convincing someone something that they need something that they don't, and then charging them for it. And so this. Um, dis-ease of lack and not enoughness that is, you know, so pervasive in our culture is fueling capitalism. Yeah. You know, that we need to have more. Our happiness comes from the outside. This is a big part of the CED program of, you know, shifting from this hedonic happiness, which is important. I'm not saying like, you know, <laughs> 
that sure. it's, it's bad to feel pleasure from things external, but really tapping into this idea of eudaimonia, the happiness that comes from within, that's innately here. It's just covered by a lot of layers and these practices help reveal that. So yeah, you know, working, working in that, you know, multi-billion dollar brand and uh, just saw quality of life. You know, people are stressed out. They're not spending time with their children. Like, um, they're not fully present. And the corporate structure, I had uh, so many people on my teams that I felt like corporate hierarchy, they weren't going to go somewhere. I'll even be willing to dip my toe a little bit in oppression. You know, capitalism needs a lower class. Racism, systematic racism, is, is capitalism is thriving on it. Yep. You know, are the countries that were were part of the economies were jump started by slavery and, and manual labor. You know, we have to look at that. I get talk about turning and facing something that doesn't feel good. Yeah. We have to look at that. So, you know, when we I think I hear a lot and I, I do my own introspection of like how am I participating in racism, oppression. And that was one of the biggest things I noticed is capitalism will always hold someone down. It's not a fair game. There will always, it needs someone to suffer in order to thrive. Uh, and so we all can turn in and look at how are we participating in these systems of oppression. Uh, and I think, you know, my experience of, by no means do I mean to say that, you know, people that work at Banana Republic are racist. It's right, all, right. it's embedded in all of our culture, all the brands, everything that we're doing. Uh, and so, yeah, just really kind of as I went through that awakening and, and just not feeling comfortable in supporting that, um, that kind of mindset anymore and seeing the damage that it was causing, it, it really woke me up. Uh, and led to making some, you know, what could be considered some pretty drastic shifts in my life. Uh, you know, I did renounce all of my material belongings. I only own 30 pieces of clothing and I travel with a bag. I don't even have a house. Uh, so shifting more to a resource-based economy, gifting, altruism-based. Um, and it's hard. I'm not going to say, you know, that it's easy. Um, because I'm doing this inside a system that's designed to not do this. Uh, one of the things that comes up for me when I talk about this is, you know, and, and we kind of briefly mentioned this, is I don't mean to say that we can't do it better with capitalism in place. Like, we, it, it's what's here and we can work with it. What's missing is the ethic of altruism. And right now we're in a place where this is not about equality. This is about equanimity. Right. Getting everyone to the starting line. Healthcare. Uh, you know, universal income or basic income, which could be a little controversial, but healthcare, education, um, housing, all of these things are, let's get everyone to the starting line. And then we can do free market capitalism on top of it. But we have a long road. You know, we need reparations. We need to make sure that the communities that have been pushed down are able to even just get a seat at the table and you might want to help, but as I say all the time, you know, let's take care of each other and then we can rip each other off. <laughs> <laughs> and, then we, and then we can profit, you know, right. but not until everyone is taken care of. And this is, this is big, you know, this is, this is big. And people are busy. They're raising children. They're, you know, doing what they know and what they've been conditioned and what we've been taught to do to survive 
surprised. I feel because of the nature of the way that my life has unfolded. I don't have children. I am single. I can try and explore new models of, you know, like I, I mentioned, resource economy. Mm-hmm. So I'm in a beautiful house right now that was gifted to me. I'm taking care of a cat in exchange. There's no money. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm driving a Porsche right now that was gifted to me for two weeks for my birthday. Wow. You know, like, so there's these, the, it's about resources. I also love this idea that, you know, it's been shown there are currently enough resources on this planet for every single human, all almost 8 billion of us to have a million, the equivalency of a million dollars. There's, there's no reason for any lack in our culture, you know, for anyone to be hungry or whatever, to be trapped in a job that they don't want to be doing. There are plenty of resources on this planet for all of us. And I feel that part of my, my role here is to um, use my life as a model to figure that out. Or again, when I say figure out, it also means mess up and make mistakes and contribute to the greater push towards a more ethic-driven, altruistic society. Very interesting stuff. Um, so first and foremost, if someone's listening who wants to take on an, uh, a similar lifestyle, right, wants to maybe let go of some of their material possessions and um, and find this form of resource exchange, like you said, resource sharing, resource gifting, um, how do you find these people who will gift their house to you in exchange for taking care of their cat for a couple of weeks or whatever? Happy, so I'm gonna go, first of all, quick sidebar. Happy birthday, by the way. So you, thank you. <laughs> I, I presume it was recent if you've been gifted a Porsche for two weeks. Dude, so, yes, yeah, uh, yeah. so pretty yeah. cool. But yeah, so how, how do people find these resources? How does one go about seeking out these opportunities? I'm going to go for a really cliche response to start this. Sure. Look, look inwards. Turn inwards. Start following the breath. Start being present with what is. I just get chills thinking about it. It's so powerful what I'm about to say that, you know, these teachings are all based on the fact that we are perfect and complete as we are. I was raised in Catholicism, which taught me that I am a sinner and, you know, and judge me for it. And these practices, what we've been talking about through this whole session is that's not really the true nature of reality. Right. And so, um, Turning inward and knowing I am enough, I deserve to have enough. You know, that was when I realized, when I first heard that statistic about there's enough resources for everyone to be a millionaire, I decided I would never pay rent again because I deserve housing. And so when you, this is after years of practice, so, you know, (laughs) but turning in and doing simple, like I said before, just take small bites, follow the breath. It allows the innate wisdom that's already inside of us that knows this. We know all of this already, but we're being conditioned to to forget. You know, you hear me say all the time, like when I'm teaching with my friends, we're all drunk. We're all delusions, you know, like all these layers pile on top. So, yeah, I would say first start turning in and really, you know, just do these simple practices that we've been talking. Simple but not easy practices. Um, Stick with it. And then Google, you know, like Google resource-based economy, gifting economy, the the premise, you know, we talk a lot in CEB particularly about gratitude. And it's one of the ethos of today's a good day, gratitude. And 
gratitude, another way of expressing gratitude is saying, this is enough. I'm so great. You know, I'm grateful for what I have. There's so much focus on what we don't have. And it, this is all creating pathways in the brain for us to then look at life as enough and not seeing our experience through the lens of lack. Um, but Googling things like, you know, gratitude, uh, resource-based economy, uh, from a housing perspective, I use a website called trustedhousesitters.com. Hmm. And it's incredible. You know, the the community that's built through that, um, you fill out a profile, people post pictures of their houses and their pets that they need taken care of. There's no money exchange. Um, and I have met some of my closest friends through this. And it's beautiful because if somebody wants their pet to be taken care of in their home and not in a kennel, or they, you know, they want to share. A lot of these people want to share. They feel bad that their home is empty. And they know, you know, I, it's done on my profile. I don't, you know, my work is all donation-based. I believe that these practices are like air and that it should be available and accessible to anyone that, that is interested in practicing it. And so when I house it, the owners know that by giving me a place for a month or two to stay while they're out of town, supports people that may not be able to afford a $600, you know, MBSR course. Uh, and because I'm able to then not charge or open it to, you know, if you can't, if you can't afford, or it's actually not even that, whatever you can afford, including nothing, show up with a sincere commitment to the practice. That's the best gift that anyone could give me as a teacher in return, you know? So the people that are, um, in this network are also displaying forms of altruism and this ethic of gifting and gratitude and feeling like they're participating in something beyond just giving me a place to stay. It's supporting this lifestyle more holistically. Very interesting. I love where this conversation is going because there's a lot of mystical things to unpack here, which is kind of a, a sidebar passion of mine. Uh, but I do want to touch on, on two quick things before uh, we we continue on with this more mystical discussion. One is um, that this is also for those of you who are listening that are staunch capitalists and and believe in a more um, uh, orange meme if you follow the integral uh, integral philosophy movement uh, style of living, which our culture is is definitely uh, centered around right now. There is a movement coming that you will not be able to stop that is heading towards more of a triple bottom line style form of business. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to get your opinion on that. A triple bottom line style for those who, who are listening that maybe don't know what it is, is your instead of your organization just having the sole bottom line of either a not-for-profit, nonprofit style of structure or a solely for-profit style or structure, you have actually three bottom lines, one being the community and society as a whole, the the quote unquote not not for profit side of it, um, or for benefit, whatever you want to call it. Of course, the bottom line of generating a profit based revenue. So you know how much money are we making? So people, profit, and um, and society as a whole. Your people being that third bottom line. So supporting your stakeholders, largely the members of your team, which. You throughout your entirety of your career, as I said on the on the video that I watched from Craft Hero of you about you and your style, you've always been a very collaborative and uh, inclusive person. 
So what are your thoughts on this movement towards social capitalism or triple bottom line economy? Um, I heard you mention in passing, you know, let's all get back to the starting line and then we can and then we can focus on a for profit style. And I think that's that's part of that. Right. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, I'm thrilled that this is happening, you know, that we're moving in that direction. I think that I even for the staunch capitalists that you, it, it's undeniable that the system is not working for everyone. It, it's just not true. You know, right. and you use the word benefit. You know, where where are the profits benefiting? And you know, the underlying um, ethic, I keep saying the word ethic of a lot of these practices for the good of all, you know, for the benefit of all beings. And we practice, you know, we practice mindfulness so we can show up better for others. So um, it there are times that it can feel more like self-serving, but really we're doing this for the benefit of all. And I think that when that starts working its way into what you're, you know, the triple bottom line, that's what's missing. That's what's missing. The, you can you can be a capitalist. You can have profit. I'm not, I, you know, I, I don't think that people need to suffer and be poor. It's just that we don't we don't all need to be that way. Right. Yeah, and um, you don't have to step on people to climb the ladder. There's a collaborative exactly. approach to be able to grow. Exactly. And the collaboration is so important. The design school that I went to was founded on the curriculum of the Bauhaus, which is that design, all types of design are the same. And collaborating like artists and architects or industrial designers, graphic design is where innovation comes from. I think I actually mentioned that in, the, in that video you're referring to. Yep. Um, and so the collaborative aspect of things does really go against this pillar of capitalism that it's every person for themselves. You know, it's it, the collaboration starts chipping away at that and starts very slowly planting seeds of, you know, it's almost like, you know, no, no one can really be happy until everyone is there. How, right. how can anyone be happy when there's so much suffering in the world? Right. I do a lot of work with people that are experiencing homelessness and just spend time on the street with them, particularly in San Francisco, where the disparity between the, the dichotomy between the, the wealth gap, people living, you know, on the street in squalor, and then there's these, literally, you know, these glass towers right next to them. And I always say, I don't know who's suffering more, the people that are on the street or the people that are living in the towers, because they're everything we talked about earlier about like stress levels, work-life balance, missing time with the family. I wouldn't really consider that wealth for me and happiness or not. There isn't really a correlation. Right. Even some of the people that I've encountered on the street, they're, they're doing okay. You know, like they don't have the, that, that's a bit of a generalization, but like they have community that, you know, they have time. Uh, they don't have access to all the basic, you know, foundations that we need for life. But when I look at some of the people that are in those towers complaining about <laughs> the people right. on the street, right. you know, wow. Right. So anyway, so to get back to your question, I, I really think that this is kind of like I'm having this visualization as we're talking of like something seeping in, you know, like it's these, these little gems, these little ethics and values that are starting to seep into our economy. Um, whether or not someone wants to talk about it openly or even admit it to themselves, it's not, it doesn't feel good to live in this world, right? you know, where right. there is so much suffering and, and inequality and injustice. So, 
Yeah, I mean, we've seen it recently, obviously, with the protests, the the rioting and the looting. All of those things come from a lot of the systemic issues that we're talking about Absolutely. today Absolutely. because lack of transparency, lack of resource sharing um, have caused a lot of these sentiments to boil up. And then you see just massive levels. I don't want to get political. And, and in all honesty, this is bipartisan by far. But you see massive levels of corruption at all levels of government and just completely ineffectual and um, uh, inept, for lack of a better term, just government, just people, multimillionaires taking out loans that should be helping small businesses to survive that are more supportive of the local communities. It's just, you know, quite frankly, not a good place to be right now, right? It's, it's the, but here we are again, when we talked about, it, we have to be here, we have to turn right. and look at this. The That's only way out of this is to go through it and really take, you know, there's so much to say here. I know, I know. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I will, I do, I feel, you know, like one of the things that is coming up a lot for me, two things, one very quickly is the reason that we're really struggling with this empathy in our culture you know, particularly race, like why, why can one race be like totally fine and the other one struggling so much because that other race is not looking at its own suffering. If someone is, you know, I say it all the time, empathy is not some magical energy that an empath has, you know, it's the, when you see someone suffering, it's, you know what it's like to suffer. I don't know what it's like for you to suffer. I don't know what it's like for um, a black, person or a woman to suffer, but I know what it's like to suffer and I don't want to suffer and I don't want anyone else to suffer. Right. That's empathy. And part of the problem that we're having right now is that the people of privilege do not want to look at their suffering. And so therefore they cannot feel and empathize with the suffering of others. The other thing that I just really wanted to mention, and this kind of touches the foundation of this three, the, the triple bottom line, everything, everything, all of our problems are coming down to the delusion that we're separate and that we're lacking and everything is a call everything is coming from that you know if we really our senses tell us that we're separate i can see you separate from me that's an that's an illusion this isn't like woo woo we're all connected you know like no it's we're the same thing it's the same thing just being expressed in all these different ways and so we look out when really we should be looking in. We, we look out and we see separation and difference and this and that. But when we look in, you know, that's where we start touching into these feelings and this lack, the lack that we're all suffering from, you know, that things are just not enough, whether it's material things, even people with massive amounts of wealth, it's still not, it will never be enough. Right. And right. so it's this, separation and lack that is really causing a lot of these problems and the triple bottom line starts to address that you know this feeling of taking care of ourselves so you know feeling like we have enough we are enough just as we are even with all of our perceived flaws we're we're not lacking anything and that we're, we're we are i don't even like to say that we're connected it's not it's not we're the same thing and the triple bottom line starts to bring that in. Yeah, that's a great point. I, and what I think just to be very, very clear to anyone who's listening to this, um, when we say triple bottom line, we're not talking about using less paper by 2025. We're talking about legitimate, accountable, real 
dynamic change, systemic change in the society and the communities that we support, which means, by the way, for those who are listening that don't understand some of these arguments or think that this is ridiculous, it's not. The problem is exactly that, that you're not listening. And that's the issue. You need to listen to your community and have the voices and the opinions. To your point, you talked about this in your video, again, on, just on the creative process, but this applies to everything, right? This is a solution, is transparent communication, bringing everyone to the table and saying, okay, what are your feelings? And yeah, maybe I'm not gonna like what you say, but if I truly listen and try to at least incorporate you know, what they're saying, and, that, and not only that, but ju justifiably so, everyone has a, a reason and a right to the way that they feel. So if you don't understand that, that's really your problem, right? And, and we're saying the general you, the societal you. Um, and, and so when someone says that they feel that they're being affected by racism or that they're afraid of the police or that they're afraid to go outside or that they don't believe that they're getting a fair shake, there's a reason that they're saying that. So if you're saying it's ridiculous or that's not true, you're you're turning a blind eye to someone's feelings. I mean, that's they feel that way for a reason <laughs> and identifying it and discussing it openly might help us come to a transparent solution. And and just a little bit of tough love here. You know, yeah. you mentioned the listening. We have to listen to each other. You know where that starts. Yeah. Right. Is listening to yeah. ourselves. Exactly. And that goes back to mindfulness, the ability to be with what's here and listen rather than, oh, this doesn't feel good. I'm pushing that away. Right. I'm going to numb it. You know, I'm going to drink it away. I even, and there's a trap here because even people, I'm going to meditate that pain away. Yep. Right. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I, I really appreciate everything that you just articulated. And I think so much of it has it starts here. I, for people right. that aren't able to see, if you're listening on audio, I'm pointing to my heart. Right. We have to listen here first. And, and strengthen that ability to then, you know, hold space for others. Right. Absolutely. So one other quick thing that I want to mention, though, uh, and this is unrelated to the to the deeper stuff that we've been talking about. So sorry for the loop back and diversion to something more entrepreneur uh, focused. Or I think this is this is more of just about a mindset shift societally. Uh, one of the things, so I've been watching uh, Masterclass, right? They They have those programs where, you know, you can sit and listen to uh, somebody talk about filmmaking or cooking or art or whatever, right? Uh, a lot of different topics and famous people. Uh, and one of them that I watched was the one with Judd Apatow talking about filmmaking and all those things. And one of the interesting things that I picked up on in passing that he says, and I've noticed it in your life and in a lot of the lives of the entrepreneurs that I've been really fortunate to come across on this podcast, is that you you come up with this idea of what you want for yourself and you find a way a to create it. So uh, I really do think that uh, the age old Napoleon Hill, that which the mind of man, but meaning human, not not gender, uh, not gender biased man as in a human uh, conceives and believes they can achieve. I really think that that's that that's true, uh, whether it's mystical or science based or whatever. Again, I'm the type of guy that if it works, just roll with it, stop asking questions and, and move on. Um, but so I thought that was really unique. But another thing, and this is what Judd Apatow points out, is that he wanted to get into comedy and into filmmaking and all these other things. So he found a way to work his day job and then side hustle, to use a modern uh, term and hashtag, 
to do that so that he could get to where he was trying to get. And I think that's a really unique nugget of information. And you have also done that, right? So you were at Banana, you were you were definitely stressed out and going through a lot of anxiety with your career path at the time, but you started teaching mindfulness classes and MBSR types of classes to develop this as a pseudo side hustle. We're just using side hustle for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. but you started doing this on the side. So talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind, because I think that that's actually one of the most valuable things that someone can do in their own life is if you feel like you're stuck in a rut, you hate your career. And look, you know, the whole I don't have time thing. I'm not I'm not going to judge. No judgment here. That's that's part of this discussion, right, is learning not to judge ourselves. But that whole I don't have time thing. And I'm guilty of this, too, 100 percent. But that whole I don't have time thing is a self judgy excuse that you're making up, quite frankly, because when you're sitting in front of the couch uh, on the couch in front of the TV watching Netflix, or something like that. You could take out your laptop and just start jotting down ideas as they pop into your brain or carry a pen and notepad as I do around with you 24/7 because when those ideas come, get them down on paper because that's the time to do it. But anyway, so let's talk about you though. You're at Banana, you're stressed out. What point is this in your career and how did you come up with doing this as a side hustle to start teaching classes and what are some of the practical tips you have maybe? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think uh, when we didn't talk about it, when we were doing the, when we were talking about judgment and non-judging and I, and it came up here, what you were describing just now is a sense of curiosity, you know? And so like, instead of saying, I don't have time judging, what would it be like if I just took five minutes every morning and did a breathing exercise? What would it be like if I decided to take this course? Just be, and maybe there's no answer. It's just shifting from that judgmental fix tight, closed mind to a more open uh, and spacious mind. Um, so yeah, curi- you know, the curiosity aspect is so important there. And that, I think, is a really good lead-in to the answer to that question of, you know, I was just curious. This isn't feeling good. My, there are aspects of my life that are not feeling good. I have disposable income. I'm living in one of the most expensive cities in the world at the time I was in San Francisco. Um, why, why am I not feeling happy? And then I started um, spending time on the street with people experiencing homelessness. Wow. You know, friends and I were just cooking food, hot food, taking it out onto the street as a means of connecting, as a conduit. We're not trying to feed, we weren't trying to end hunger and feed the world. We were trying to connect and use the food as uh, to break down the barrier. Uh, so the experiences that I was having on the street were so powerful hearing people's stories, uh, just a lot of times people are in some sort of psychosis. They're like talking to a wall or a tree and you say, Hey, how are you? And they snap right out of it. They come right, right back into the reality that we're operating on. And, uh, I've also spent a lot of time with friends, just kind of supporting them through shifts in their nutrition and fitness and just kind of sharing what I've learned along the way. And I, to be honest with you, I don't talk about this very often, but I started getting this like really strong tingling sensation, like chills down the back of my spine when I was interacting with someone on the street or helping someone, you know, in the gym or something like that, that I was not getting at Banana Republic. I was not getting that when I would check my bank account, you know? <laughs> and that's when that, I think that was like the first cracks that started forming of like, wow, this joy that I get from being in service 
pound. You can't even put it, you can't even put money on it. And that's when I really started feeling at that time, I felt like, okay, you know, I can still do the corporate thing and then do this stuff on the weekends or after work. And I did that for about a year. And, you know, we, the, the program of working with people on the street developed into a, an organized thing. And, and the more, the more that sensation of, you know, doing those things to help other people, being in service to other people, I started feeling this kind of healing happening inside of me by being there for other people. And then it just got louder and louder to the point where it was just drowning out whatever was happening up and out in public. And I'll never forget the day I was, I was in a meeting. We were about to sign some marketing digital partnership. And it was like, you know, with a lot of money. Right. And I could not even pay attention. I could, it was like, you got to talk about mindfulness and the mind wandering. Like, I couldn't care less. I said it, you know, and that's when I knew. And so that evolved, you know, that kind of work supporting other people evolved into uh, community meditations where you basically just ring a bell and everyone does their own thing, you know, just holding a space. And, um, and then I started getting a little bit more into like, maybe I can do this with people on the street. You know, they have no, zero access to anything like this. So just doing simple breathing exercises with them and the transformation that was happening in others, but also in myself. Uh, wow. Talk about the wisdom that just arises naturally. I will say, and this might be, this might be, you know, a bit far out for some people. It wasn't coming from a cognitive place. I was feeling my way through it, not thinking my way through it, you know? Interesting. Uh and when the time came to leave Banana, I had been there for 19 years and I wanted to just take a little bit of a break. And, the, and, and MBSR had already taken the course as a participant, you know, and, and that was life changing as well. And I just started feeling the calling, you know, to like transition into teaching and, and sharing my practices. Uh, and so after about six months of just letting all the pieces settle from Banana, and, and I also... I think it's important, given that we were just talking about privilege and race, mm -hmm. to acknowledge that I'm able to do this because of the privilege, including That's access to the teaching. That's a good you point. You know, like it, and so um, I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, and yeah, so I started at you know the Penn Penn Medical Program for the teacher training, and then that. Um, sent me on a journey around the world to learn all the different types of meditation. And I spent time living in a monastery in the Himalayas. And wow. Just felt like if I was going to teach these modalities, even though they're secular and not based in religion or any kind of spirituality, I like to say that they're logic, not spirit, <laughs> uh, logical, not spiritual, uh, which then brought me back to the U.S. to finish my teacher training at UMass Medical, which then gave me the permission to teach these things in public institutions because they're science. So now I, we can teach this in schools, in hospitals, you know, the NICUs, without worrying about the sacred religious aspect of it. So that's kind of like the short version of how that, maybe wow. that's long, but. No, that was that incredible. Up. I mean, uh, just a, a few questions that I have. So now shifting to the more mystical stuff, because I, I definitely have a, a, a pension and a passion for, for these kinds of things. Because, you know, by the way, for those who, who are, are staunch Western scientific, uh, you know, uh, uh, scientific dogma, for, quite frankly, because it's becoming more of a religion than, than, uh, than a rational practice. But sidebar for another day. Um, 
uh, for those of you who 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 are are classical scientists, I'll say if you look at the quantum world, I mean, there, there's quantum entanglement. There's all sorts of quote unquote scientific, which by the way, Easterners have known for thousands of years, and we're now right, just exactly. finally just because some scientists exactly. Exactly. discovered it, right? All of a sudden, it's uh, uh, let's not get into Qigong or meridians. We'll be here all day talking about this stuff. But anyway, so. So I, I have a real passion for this this mystical stuff, especially when it applies to choosing your own path and really as an individual kind of shaping your own universe. And um, I firmly believe in the following statement that there are as many universes as there are at least sentient beings on this planet, at least, at least at a minimum. But um yeah, we could we could get into this uh, uh, really deeply, but I just want to know what your perspective is on that because there's a lot of that in your story there, right? There's you're not happy with where you are. All of a sudden, you sort of mystically, for lack of a better term, come to the realization that something you've been doing your entire life is where your true passion and your true purpose, for lack of a better term, lies, and you decide to chase that, and all of a sudden things just start to materialize for you, for lack of a better term. And yeah, it's in part, if you want to look at a pragmatic perspective, there's some awareness and, and openness to opportunities presenting themselves to you. But there's just this really interesting thing. Ending up in a, a monastery in the Himalayas is, is awesome, first of all, but, uh, but just really fascinating if you think about it. I mean, year, uh, two, three years before that, I would imagine there's that wasn't even an inkling of a possibility in your mind, right? So can you talk about that, that that tingling that you felt? When when did that sort of resonate for you? And and what what's your perspective on that? It was always there. It was always there. It was being suppressed. It was, I was not, I was conditioned to push that down. You know, how would I make money? How would I live? You know, like all the questions that I'm sure everyone that's listening yep. are asking themselves. And this is where the curiosity comes in. You know, just be curious. That's all you have to do is answer, ask the question. I will say I didn't chase, you know, like the, the, yeah. the feelings that I was having, like whatever this opening in my heart center and all this, I, was, I didn't chase it. I just let it be there, had a, a sense of curiosity. Um, I'm not going to use the word faith. I will say there's kind of like a knowing, like a feeling rather than a thought of it. And so just letting things be and um, being curious and exploring different things and, and knowing I am enough and that I will be okay no matter what happens, you know, which is also comes from privilege, you know, like the conditioning of, of you would just say that, you know, the Buddha was privileged. He was a prince and he renounced everything and left the palace. He knew he could go back. So there's, there's something there That's around that we all need to have a sense of safety before we can even get to that starting line. So, um, you know, one of the key elements of, of mindfulness and meditation and, and this kind of the ultimate nature of reality is impermanence and everything is changing, changing, changing. You know, the mind, I love this analogy of the mind being like a river. You can't, where is the river? You, the river is constantly changing. The water that was there in a split second, it's now somewhere else. When you look at a river, it's never the same the next second. And the mind is the same way, constantly shifting, flowing, changing, responding. And it's the grabbing on 
imagine trying to like grab how do you grab onto a river you know you, you can't or like grab onto the things that feel good or push away and i was i'm not gonna speak for anyone else i was spending so much of my life so much of my energy grabbing and pushing grabbing and pushing and when i started letting things flow you know I was sitting on a dock with a really good friend the day before my birthday and the waves were just moving underneath us it was a floating dock. And I was like, wow, this is, a, this is like an analogy for life. We're sitting here, there's waves coming, you know, is the analogy that could be a moat. And we're just letting it move right underneath us. We're not doing anything with it. And so I think that like, you know, all of this stuff adds up to allowing, allowing life to be here and the wisdom that arises, you know what to do. You know, like maybe, maybe the word balance would be helpful here, you know, like finding a way of balancing my thinking and my feeling that then became my internal guidance system that I was raised in a society that was like glorifying thinking and intelligence. So the pendulum just swung all the way over there. Um, and I'm not saying that we should, you know, all live in a place of only feeling. We need the thinking so we can cross the street. <laughs> But we don't need to identify it with it. And the minute that I stopped doing that, you know, uh, so much opened up in front of me because I wasn't holding, I wasn't gripping so tightly. And then all of a sudden there was space, spaciousness, room for choice. So yeah, no, letting, uh, really embracing the idea of impermanence and change and allowing it to flow through. I think that was probably the biggest turning point. And all of this came, I want, I'm going to keep saying this, all of this came from following my breath, from noticing my feet on the floor, you know, feeling, noticing the emotions, like all of, it's, it's beautiful how simple these practices are that really support us on these like big macro levels. Don't worry. And, and for anyone listening, like, don't worry about changing the world. Don't worry about like how big this problem of injustice that we're having is. Be curious about it. The worrying, the right. fear, it closes us off from the wisdom and, and the compassion you know, that we need to navigate. Perfect. Uh, it could not have been better said, I think. Um, and the funny thing is just one little uh, uh, synchronicity thing uh, for you. You're, I think, uh, I'm just loosely counting off the top of my head, but you're, I think, the fifth guest in a row, if I'm not mistaken, on this podcast to talk about how curiosity was a game changer for them in their lives and just led to really amazing things. Um, so awesome. Uh, uh, just fascinating, fascinating stuff. And one of the quick things I just want to summarize, and this is something that I've been fortunate enough to have been uh, told by my teacher as well, and, and I'm hearing you say is there's a dichotomy in the universe. The, the whole concept of yin and yang is a universal law, essentially. There are two sides to every coin. And uh, it actually goes all the way back to hermeticism as well uh, in terms of polarity and all of these concepts that are universal uh, in nature. And one of those dichotomies put into the perspective of a human being is there's a dichotomy uh, that you find this balance that you mentioned between being happy with who you are in the moment, but always knowing that you can be better and striving for growth. And I think once you start to become curious about that, sort of feathering the throttle or allowing the waves to come and go, however you want to put it for yourself that makes sense, magical, magical things start to happen. And uh, that's why I was really curious about your your experiences, because um, I just I hear such a resonance in that 
from these other entrepreneurs. And I use entrepreneurs loosely. loosely. Some are authors, some are full-on creatives. Some are, one was the president of the Philadelphia Union, a soccer team. Uh, you know, it's from all shapes and walks of life. And when you apply that type of curiosity to just life in general, magical things happen. And then the people within your oracle aura or sphere, right, of influence start to become better as well. Just, just you notice that things start to loosen up. And I couldn't agree with you more in the um, being respectful of people's uh, emotions and opinions. And uh, privilege is certainly prevalent in our society. But to a degree, I think that's the solution lies in being curious and inclusive and not being um, not being focused so much on the differences. Uh, you're you're this is just personal opinion. I hope nobody takes this the wrong way. But I think we're amplifying the problem by doing so rather than looking for it. And to some degree, the protests did bring bring about a lot of alliance and, and communal union. Right. Um, but yeah, we need to to find a way to work together and be more inclusive. Um, Teague, so if if individuals want to be a part of one of your programs or they want to bring you into their organization to do an MBSR uh, program or something or a CEB program for their organization, how can they get in contact with you and, and what would they need to know to prep for it? Yeah, um, thank you for that. So I do have a very light touch in the digital realm. I'm much more, uh, you know, my kind of, if you will, air quotes, marketing strategy is more about attraction and not promotion. And I do feel a lot of capitalism is thriving on self-promotion and, uh, so to answer the question, the best way is to email me. Okay. Uh, so I do have a presence on social media. I'm not very active on it. Aside, I teach a lot on social media. Uh, but yeah, so emailing me, T-E-A-G-U-E-O-M-A-L-L-E-Y at gmail.com is really the best way. And, you know, you mentioned about like bringing these practices into an organization. That's really, you know, that's the collaboration. That's really where things can start moving. Uh, and I love that. And I, you know, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, cultivating emotional balance, diaphragmatic breathing, these are like a buffet. And so I love working with organizations to kind of customize what's right for, you know, that population, like in the hospital, the work I do in the hospital, it's really about accepting what's here, relaxing the nervous system, and then finding gratitude, you know, so you can kind of like pull from what from all these offerings, what would work best for someone's organization. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Teague, thank you so much for your time and for the the valuable insights that you brought to this discussion. I hope that people will really uh, find their own path of mindfulness, hopefully from this, uh, either by reaching out to you if they have any questions or by uh, checking out some of the apps that we mentioned throughout. Um, But yeah, thanks so much for your time and look forward to seeing everything that you have coming down the pike. I especially look forward to seeing one of your walking mandolins in person yeah. soon. So, yeah, totally. And I would like to also say, you know, in the lineage that I practice, we um, kind of offer the energy that we cultivated. So you and I, anyone listening to this, to just take a moment and offer any kind of energy or insight that have come up to the benefit of all beings, you know, that this is not just for this, this conversation and, 
and the insights here are not just for the benefit of us and people listening, but for all beings. So to end with that and let that ripple effect go out into the world.